from Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 12 to 2 verse 20. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made men like fish in the sea, like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to his complaint. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out. The beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you, and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol, since a man has carved it, or an image that teaches lies? The he who makes it trusts his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Do take a seat. 
Friends, a very good morning. It's lovely to see you all. Uh, I'll pray in a moment, but just before I do, let me just say two very brief things. Uh, a number of people have asked, what is our timeline for finishing at St. Stephen's? Uh, I'll finish on the staff formally on the 28th of February, so uh, two weeks' time will be my last Sunday. Uh, but we'll be having a kind of farewell and commissioning on the 14th of March. So um, we're around for a little while longer and hope to catch up with many of you, although we'll be away for the first two weeks in March. People have also asked, when is Jay back from study leave? Uh, I said last week by accident, uh, a slip of the tongue, uh, he was on holiday. He's, of course, not on a three-month-long holiday. And uh, study leave is very much not a holiday. It's um, a chance, I think, every six or seven years for ministers to skill up in a particular area. And Jay's been working very, very hard on thinking through uh, Anglicanism. And uh, that will come out, I think, in, in, in talks and, and other thinking for St. Stephen. So we'll be blessed by setting him aside to do that. But he's very much not on holiday. Uh, he will be back on the 1st of March. Uh, and so we will see him again uh, soon. The other thing to say is I bought some uh, little books uh, a few months ago to help people who are maybe finding their quiet times or their Bible reading a little bit tricky. And as I was clearing things up, I found them and I realize I haven't given them away. If, if you're somebody who, and there's no embarrassment in this, finding it hard to read the Bible on your own, uh, would like a little bit of help, maybe it's got a little bit uh, stale and you think I'd like to try something new, I, I've got two options here. Uh, I'd love to give it to you. Uh, don't be embarrassed about asking it. Totally free. It's, it's, it's for you. Use it. Uh, I'll be standing at the back at the end. Come and grab it. I'd love to give one to you. Well, as we come to God's word, uh, let's say a prayer and ask for his help. Father God, we praise you that you speak to us through your word, by your spirit. We marvel at that, that you from your great throne in heaven will speak. And so we pray, dear Father, open our hearts to receive your word, that we might listen to it, we might read it, mark it, learn it, and inwardly digest it, that your thoughts might be our thoughts. For Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. He was a good man, doing God's work. How could God let him get that terrible illness? It's not fair. My elderly neighbor lost everything in the red zone, and the guy who fiddled the system is living in luxury. It's not fair. In Nigeria, Boko Haram regularly abduct Christians, and the world just looks on. It's not fair. I wonder if you have said... If you have thought something like that recently, imagine as many of us pray for Phil and Chris Carr, the first one particularly resonates. Oh Lord, faithfully doing your work, how could you let that illness come? Well, those kind of questions get to the heart of our passage today. Habakkuk is asking, look at verse 13, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? If you were here last week, you remember we're in this little book of Habakkuk where there's a conversation, a dialogue between God and his prophet. Habakkuk looks out and he sees the violence in uh, the people of God 600 years or so before Christ. And he cries out, chapter 1, verse 2, How long, O Lord, must I call for help and you do nothing? Well, God replies, I am doing something. I'm sending the Babylonians. They are coming and they will punish but the cure is much worse than the disease. Okay, the wicked people in Judah, the southern kingdom, are removed and punished. But they're replaced by this even more evil and wicked empire. And Habakkuk wrestles with this problem, as so many do down the ages. If God is good, and if God is in charge, why do bad things happen to good people? 
Why do wicked people seem to prosper? Now, just notice that's a particularly kind of Christian concern. If you don't believe in God, you can't blame him that things go wrong. But it's not enough just to believe in a general God. See what kind of God is needed. It's a God who is good. It's a God who is good, and it's a God who is powerful. And some people, as they wrestle with this, they try, if I can say, to solve this problem. It's not really a problem you can solve, but they try and wrap their heads around it by reducing one of those things, by either limiting God's power or his goodness. So some people say, well, yes, God is kind of powerful, but sometimes he gets overwhelmed and, and maybe the devil kind of knocks him off his throne or, or, or things just get too complicated and he drops a ball. Well, not only is that not a biblical picture, it's very far from a biblical picture. But when you think about it, it's a terrifying thought, isn't it? If the devil can somehow knock God off his throne, then how do we know when we're in the middle of a terrible time that things won't fly out of control? How do we know that God is able to keep his promises if he's not absolutely in control? The other thing sometimes people say is, well, yes, God is absolutely powerful, but maybe he's not totally good. Well, again, the Bible is really clear he is good. But what a a horrifying thought that would be. That would be like living in North Korea under an all-powerful dictator who, if he wakes up in a bad mood, can cause chaos for many before breakfast. And if that is what God is like, we want nothing to do with him, do we? But the Bible teaches, and Habakkuk knows God is absolutely sovereign and absolutely good and holy. He says that, doesn't he, in, in verse 12. O Lord, you have appointed them, that's the Babylonians, to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. This isn't some fluke. It's not just a product of kind of political forces. God has raised up these Babylonians for his purpose. But look again at verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. I know, says Habakkuk, you are 100% good, you are holy, you are perfect. But it leads, doesn't it, to this dilemma. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And friends, we must avoid easy solutions to this. There is no easy solution to this. And when we try and do it, we bring great harm and chaos. Do you see how Habakkuk wrestles He groans, he cries out to God. And then having poured out his questions to God, he goes up onto these ramparts and waits for God to answer him. And the rest of chapter 2 is God's answer to Habakkuk. And notice again, just like last week, God does not rebuke Habakkuk. It's right to wrestle with this. And if you're in the middle of a, a struggle, wrestling and crying out, that is a good response. And see what God kindly does on back see what god kindly does for habakkuk he gives habakkuk a vision of the time when the tables will be turned on evil he reassures habakkuk of the truth of his word have a look at verse two he's told to write the revelation or the vision clearly on stone tablets so that other people may read it or run with it that is this message is to be taken out to others Now, what exactly gets written on on the tablets is a little bit unclear. It's probably verse 4, maybe verse 4 and 5. But the point is, the thrust of this message is to go out. And it's a revelation, not just for Habakkuk, 
Look at verse 3. It's something that is for the end. It won't perhaps happen in Habakkuk's day. Well, look at the message. Look at the contrast in verse 4 and 5. We have a contrast between the Babylonian and indeed all who reject God and the righteous person who trusts in the Lord. Look at verse 4. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. The proud person. The person who rejects God's authority and does what he wants, he will be judged. But the righteous, that is the believer, will live by his or her faith. Now righteous here doesn't mean someone who is inherently good. No, this is someone who believes God's promises and God credits that to them as righteous. In today's terms, this is the Christian who knows that by nature they are proud and puffed up, yet in humility comes to God and asks for forgiveness. That person will live by their faith. These verses are picked up in at least, in, in I think, three places in the New Testament. They're picked up in, in Galatians and in Romans by letters written by the Apostle Paul. And they're written up, uh, picked up by uh, the letter to the Hebrews. And th- these two uh, things... Paul's Paul's letters and Hebrews just pick up this verse and teach it from a slightly different angle. When Paul teaches this, he makes the point about the beginning of the Christian life. He's saying to us, people are not saved by keeping the law. We are saved by faith. In a sense, he's talking about the beginning of the Christian life. That somebody who knows they are a sinner who comes in faith will have their sins forgiven by faith in Christ. They'll be declared righteous by faith. They will live by faith. But in Hebrews 10, it's a slightly different question. Uh, the, The context is one of suffering. And the question is, how do I keep living in the midst of suffering? And the answer is, you keep going in the same way you began the Christian life, by faith, by trusting in Christ, by remembering God's promise, and by faith you will live. Live your life by faith. I love Psalm 56. I'm sure it's a favorite for many. And the psalmist has this repeated refrain, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. When you think about it, it's a little bit odd, isn't it? He always trusts God. That's why he's singing that psalm. But when I'm afraid, I actively, consciously put my trust in you. And I think that's what's going on here. Trust, faith, is not a wishy-washy kind of thing. It's not just hoping for the best. But it's leaning on God. It's, it's appropriating his goodness by faith. And that is what Habakkuk urges us to do. To lay hold of God by faith. The one who does that will live. We're to live trusting all of God's promises. And there are many promises wonderfully in the Bible, aren't there? But I think there are three particular promises he draws out in this chapter. Three promises that will help us, help the righteous person to live by faith in a fallen world. The first one's this. Every evil deed will be punished. Justice will be done. Every evil deed will be punished. Justice will be done. In verse 6, the... um, Defeated nations take up a chant, a taunt kind of song against Babylon. We see in, um, we see in verse 5, um, 
they, they taunt him with ridicule and scorn. And I think the image is a little bit like a playground bully. Imagine the play, playground bully. He's been causing torment to the other school kids for months. And then finally somebody knocks him over. And all those little kids who've been bullied finally pluck up the courage to go round him. And as, he, as the bully lies on the floor, they taunt him. That's the kind of image. And this taunt is broken into five little woes, five sketches, if you like, of judgment. And in the first instance, this speaks of the fall of the Babylonian Empire in 539 BC. But verse 3 makes it clear this is for more than that time. It's for the end. And it speaks of the time of the final judgment. There's an application wider than Babylon. Well, let's look at the first woe. Verses 6 to 8. Woe on him who extorts and steals and exploits. Verse 6, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Babylon, like many empires, including sadly the British Empire, got rich in part by plundering the people they conquered. Now we need to be careful, there was much that empires did that was good, but we have to, and people today would say that empires are always bad. Well, not necessarily. But excesses are wrong. And the warning is those empires that plunder. Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. There's a principle here of reciprocity. And that's the same in many of the woes. The things that you have done will be done back to you. It's not a random, violent judgment. It's a judgment that comes in kind. And Babylon is plundered. And she in turn will be plundered by the Persians. The guy today who spends his life ripping off others will find himself ripped off. Verses 9 to 11. We see the second woe. Woe to him who builds his realm or his dynasty by unjust gain. This is the person who shores up their position, who tries to set up their nest untouchably high by ruining others. And though they look secure, they will bring shame on their house. The backstabber in the office, who climbs up the corporate ladder by pulling others off. The warning is he too will fall to the bottom. Or verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. The dodgy landlord who gets rich housing people in scholar, he will be held to account. Or fourthly, 15 to 17. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it out from the wineskin till they are drunk so he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the right, Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. Written 2,600 years ago, it sounds so contemporary, doesn't it? People who get others drunk so they can exploit them sexually. I take it to gaze on their naked bodies is a a euphemism. And you see the point. Those who do these awful things will be themselves exposed. And I think the reason he mentions drink here is that drink brings out people's latent pride. As people get drunk, they have a, a kind of courage, don't they? They call it Dutch courage. No idea why they call it Dutch. Number of Dutch people here. Sorry that... Don't, don't imagine you particularly as a nation of drunkards. I think more of... Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> but when people are drunk, they think, don't they, sometimes of themselves as invincible. I wonder if you remember the end of the Babylonian Empire in Daniel chapter 6. 
Remember, King Belteshazzar holds that drunken party. And as he becomes drunk, he orders the holy cups taken from God's temple in Jerusalem to be brought out. And he uses these holy cups in, a, in, a, in an idol worship ceremony. He toasts his idols. And in that moment, he looks and seems so invincible, taunting the holy God. But what happens? Do you remember that hand with four fingers that writes on the wall those four words many many tekel parson and as that happens king belteshazzar is absolutely horrified the hebrew literally says he um he loosened his bowels and do you see that moment of seeming invincibility he is humbled and that very night the persians came up through the canal and defeated babylon and do you see the point god will not be mocked justice will come or the final woe, 18 to 19. Woe to him who worships idols. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. And worshipping anything other than God is, is an insult to God, isn't it? But the seeds of the downfall of the one who worships an idol is in the very act of their false worship. Because in the day they need salvation, an idol is breathless, just a bit of stone. In the same way as someone whose idol is their career, or their possessions, or their family, or their relationships. In the hour of their need, the time they need salvation, their idol disappoints, leaves them wanting. Well, Habakkuk asks, doesn't he, is God silent, whilst the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? No. 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 Because God's promise is he will judge every evil deed. For those who are suffering, for those of you who have suffered, for those of you who've been the product of injustice, the comfort of these verses is justice will be done. God is not sleeping on the job. Justice will be done. So we should believe this promise, lay hold of this promise by faith. The righteous one will live by his or her faith. But you see, this isn't justice, this isn't judgment just for the sake of judgment. It's not that God's somehow being vindictive. Judgment comes so that righteousness may flourish. Here's a second promise. All the world will know the glorious Lord Jesus. All the world will know the glorious Lord Jesus. Look again at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? That is to say, all of our efforts to build for our own glory, to, to expand our own kingdoms, they will come to nothing because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a slightly odd image, isn't it? The water covering the sea, what does that mean? But I take it the waters cover the sea completely. And so too will God's glory fill the earth completely. And what is God's glory? Someone has said God's glory is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. It's the invisible God made known. You remember when the temple, the place where God symbolically was to dwell among his people was finished, then a great cloud descended and it was a sign of God's presence, the invisible God made visible. Well, this word know here, 
doesn't mean information. It's not as if somebody's just kind of Googled the Lord and they found some facts out about him. It means they will know him. All the peoples of the earth will know him individually and personally. Can you imagine what a wonderful promise that was for Habakkuk? As he stood on those ramparts, looking over a city trashed by the Babylonians. And he looked at the carnage and and thought how puny Israel looked. And yet here is this promise. One day, the knowledge of the Lord will fill the entire earth. He must have clung to that promise. Must have kept him going as he kept trusting in the Lord. But he didn't know how the Lord would fulfill it, did he? But we do. Remember in John's Gospel, these famous words. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The invisible God made visible. And that glory is seen chiefly in Jesus. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord filling the earth sounds abstract. It means that everyone one day will know the Lord Jesus personally. And when you think about it, there are many things in this passage that point to him, aren't there? He is the one who lived every moment of his life by faith. Verse 4, trusting in the word of God. And yet Jesus was the one who most experienced chapter 1 verse 13, wasn't he? The one who lived righteously. And yet was swallowed up by the wicked, given a sham trial, nailed to a cross. And we know the night before his arrest, he, uh, the night of his arrest, he was in the garden praying, Lord, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Well, what is the cup? It's the cup mentioned in chapter 2, verse 16. The cup that comes from the right hand of the Lord for those who are puffed up and proud. And righteous, innocent Jesus prayed, if you are willing, remove that cup from me. And yet God's plan from the beginning of time was that his son would drink of that cup. When you think about it, it's a wonderful thing that evil will be judged. But it also ought to unnerve us. Because though we do not do the evil deeds of Babylon, in our hearts are not the same kind of attitude, pride and puffed upness. And actually we too deserve to drink of that cup. But wonderfully the Lord Jesus drank it. Righteous, innocent Jesus drank it to the end. That for those who live by faith there is no wrath left. And Jesus died, of course, trusting his God, full of faith. But he who died then lives because God raised him from the grave. And he is the promise and the pledge that though now believers will suffer, though some will be swallowed up by the wicked, They will be raised. Death will not be the end because by faith they are united to Christ. And the wonderful truth is that the world will one day be full of those who acknowledge Jesus Christ, who know his glory, and who rather than perpetuating injustice, live for the Lord, loving him, loving others. And actually when you think about it, we see that now, don't we? Think of the guy in the office or, the, or school or, or the neighborhood who, who's just obsessed with himself. And actually, the, the kind of ripples of unpleasantness come out from him as he barges ahead and, and knocks people out of his way. Well, if that person is got hold of by the Lord, if they see the glory of the Lord Jesus and are converted and, and begin to live for God, well, the ripples of destruction stop. And instead, actually, 
God's grace flows out. I once was chatting to a friend who worked in Laos, and she, she and her husband ran a farm in, in the countryside, and they were trying to teach people how to farm and, and share the gospel with them. And they kept talking about a particular official who was um, just kind of vindictive. And he, instead of running the village for, for everyone's good, he'd, he'd kind of exploit the people. And I remember them talking in this little prayer meeting about how if that guy was got hold of by Jesus, how the village would be transformed as he began to serve the village instead of exploit it. And friends, don't we know of that? Because weren't we too once part of this problem? That in our pride and our puffed upness, we sent out those ripples of destruction. But then we saw the glory of the Lord and he changed us. He worked in us and now we seek to serve, not perfectly. We're not what we want to be. We're not what we one day will be, but we're not what we once were. And so we who've seen the glory of the Lord begin to spread his glory abroad. And it's glorious. And we rejoice that more and more through St. Stephen's, through churches, people see the glory of the Lord Jesus. And this unrighteous world is transformed little by little. But we have to wait for the end. We have to wait for the return of the Lord Jesus to see this in its fullness. But the promise is one day it will come. Though it seems to linger, it will come. Well, friends, finally, here's the third promise, very briefly. Verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. And the promise is this, the Lord is good and he is reigning. The Lord is good and he is reigning. As the Babylonians crashed through nation after nations, they claimed it's because their gods were better than the gods of the nations they defeated. And as they smashed into the temple in Jerusalem and took those objects, some Israelites must too have been tempted to think, is God really as powerful as the Bible says he is? And as we look around, aren't we tempted too to wonder that sometimes? Maybe 50 years ago when things were simpler, before we had the internet and before things were so fast, maybe then we could believe God was in charge, but not now. Maybe when many people went to church, but not now. And yet this says the idols of this age, the things that people worship, the things that seem so powerful, money and possessions and experiences, actually, yes, they're covered in gold and silver, verse 19. Yes, they sparkle. Yes, they're very attractive. But they cannot give guidance. They cannot give life because they have no life in themselves. And yet God is in his holy temple. And all the world is to be silent before him. Because right now he is ruling the world. One of the places I'm going to miss most in Christchurch, I think, is the gondola. I love going up the gondola and looking over the city. And as you go up there, you see, don't you, the whole city, tens of thousands of houses, which house hundreds of thousands of people. And of all, in all of those hundreds of thousands of people, millions of cells made up of trillions and trillions of atoms. And all of them, all of those people, all of those cells, all of those atoms, each one individually and uniquely under God's providential care. It's a mind-boggling thought, isn't it? I can't even control my schedule. And yet God rules all of it. And friends, we need to know this truth this week. We need to apply it to our lives. We may not be plundered by marauding Babylonians, but it often feels like the world is out of control. 
maybe something that we know really isn't that big, but in the moment it feels like it. Maybe it's the awkward conversation you know you'll have to have in the office tomorrow morning. Maybe it's just standing around after church in a few minutes and you're worried that you'll be alone. It feels awkward. Or maybe it is something serious, something life-changing. Maybe it's waiting for a test result. Maybe it's worried about a friend or family member in need. But whatever it is, do we see God is on the throne? And we need with our eyes of faith to look up and see that our good and loving Heavenly Father is in his temple ruling the world. doesn't give us a quick fix. doesn't just solve it. But it does mean as we wrestle, we know we don't walk alone. We don't walk with despair. The Lord God is in his holy temple. We live in a chaotic, messy world. It seems like God is letting evil go unchecked. But he will judge. And he will bring in the knowledge and glory of the Lord Jesus to every single part of this globe. That time will surely come. Because he sits on his throne now. But the question is how will we live? The unrighteous is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. May God give us the grace today, this week, to walk by faith as we trust his promises. Let's pray together. Father, we long that you would help us to believe what we know to be true in this word and in the midst of hardship, in the midst of our struggles, with tears in our eyes sometimes and with the help of those around us to cling to you by faith and walk in your ways. For Jesus' sake, amen.